0: Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and foster care. Today we're going to be talking about adopting tweens and teens with Brian Post. Brian is an adopted and former foster child. He is a master's of social work specializing in child behavior and adoption, and he is a founder of the Post Institute, which you can find at postinstitute.com. He is also the host of Post Daily Dose, which is an original Facebook live show five days a week at 6.30 p.m., and you can find that at facebook.com postinstitute. Well, welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for talking with us today. You know, the greatest need, which is no surprise to you, in both international and foster care adoption and fostering, is to uh, adopt or foster children 10 or older. Uh, And and yet, adolescents have a, a bad reputation, well, in general in our society, and those in foster care or orphanages even have a worse reputation. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, first of all, thank you, Don, for having me. It's my honor and uh, privilege to be here with you all. And to answer that question, it is because, first of all, teenagers get a, have a bad reputation, um, in general. And yes. So when you, <laughs> when you when you then tie on um, international or domestic adoption, the trauma, the issues. The challenges, I mean, parents, just biological, natural parents have challenges with their teenagers, and so adopted children come with a special set of unique um, challenges, and it's very easy for parents to get overwhelmed when they don't expect it, especially when perhaps you've raised your own natural children, and you think that you know raising raising adopted children are going to, is going to be just as you know along the same continuum, and it proves to be a lot more challenging than you expected, so it's uh, understandable. And just to tie in, you know, internationally adopted children, especially the tweens and teens, have gone through typically an enormous amount of trauma and experiences that we are seldom, that we are seldom aware of. I mean, it, it is, you know, there's, I've heard some real horror stories. So it's, um, it's, it's to be expected.
0: Mm-hmm. So we we polled our audience and, and asked them, what are some of the things that would work uh, that worry them when they consider adopting a child 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you know, and on up. And one of the first things we heard was they're worried about, for lack of a better word, we'll say challenging behaviors that are going to be hard to parent, sneaking out, of, um, of, sec- acting out sexually, sneaking out, of, um, smoking, drinking, drugs, things such as that. So uh, l- let's talk about... The reality and, and, and of of this fear and and what we could say to parents who are hesitant to go into adopting an older child for these because of these fears
1: well you know those those are are fears pretty common to every parent of a tween or teen, and I will say that parents need to really do a lot of self-reflection and they really need to think about their own adolescent experience before stepping into adopting teens and tweens because you know all those issues are are quite likely um to occur and you have to be able in my experience you have to be able to build a strong enough relationship with the child from the very beginning that allows you to influence them as opposed to try to control them. And uh, I'll just say, uh, because I like to be really honest and, and really real with parents, when a child has grown up in an orphanage or they've grown up in foster care for, for that 10, 10 years or more, they've learned to rely on themselves a great deal. So trusting an adult, and I don't care if you're putting a, a secure roof over their head and good food on the table and you're, you're there with a smile every morning, trusting an adult when you've got that kind of background of trauma is gonna be really challenging. So it is a very realistic fear for parents and because I don't want parents walking into these situations thinking that it's not because it is a great likelihood that many of these things will happen. And so the question is how do you understand the child differently when those kind of behaviors show up to help you navigate through those challenging behaviors?
0: You talked about the difficulty in, in in establishing trust with a child, a child who has had to, rely on themselves and their own wits and their survival instincts to get to the ripe old age of 12, 13, 14, or whatever, um, is, is not used to relying or trusting the adults because the adults have not been trustworthy in their life, most likely. So what are some ways that parents can help create trust in a child that has had little reason to trust adults?
1: Well, let's uh, let's start and look at the foundation of that which is really the neurophysiology of trust. And the neurophysiology of trust is rooted in secure attachment. Secure attachment experiences which is which is rooted in the experience of being able to regulate emotions, regulate regulate stress with a healthy, nurturing, secure adult. So when a child has not had the experience of having their emotions and their stress co-regulated with an adult, then what happens? There's a couple things that happen, but one fundamental thing that happens is they don't they don't develop a healthy oxytocin response. And a healthy oxytocin response, oxytocin is your brain's anti-stress hormone. A healthy oxytocin response is what, what is what helps you combat stress when it shows up day to day. So when you don't have a healthy oxytocin response, number one, number two, when you haven't had an experience, a repetitive experience with adults that help you co-regulate when you're stressed, when you're scared, when you're worried, when you're anxious, when you're afraid, when you're angry. And number three, when you've had those experiences, Experiences with adults in your states of stress, fear, anger, anxiety, et cetera, and those experiences have been negative, what your brain becomes conditioned to and what your neurology becomes conditioned to is self-survival constricting into itself, constricting into survival. And so you develop, metaphorically, you develop this wall that you hide behind, but neurophysiologically, what's actually happening is your brain has created this pathway that it pursues, that it just learns that survival is the way you get through everything. And so one of the biggest challenges that parents encounter is that they wanna be, this secure person. They want to be this person to help the child regulate through this stress and through these emotions, but they don't realize that this child has a, has a neurologic pathway that's established that they don't know anything other than their own self-survival. So frustration ensues Mm -hmm. because the parents immediately start to feel helpless.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: When the parents start to feel helpless, what that, that does is that triggers and opens up their own brainstem and their own pathways around early relationships and, and the helplessness that, they've, that they may have experienced in other relationships, or which may turn into, you know, root into the pathways of not feeling good enough, not being mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. You know, it just triggers all the parents' insecurities. And then what happens is the parent from their place of stress starts to reinforce this child's already negative pathway. So that's the foundation, understanding that and being real clear, real clear about that is the first step. Now, a lot of times, Don, I intervene into families where they haven't been clear about that from the very beginning. And so so now they are years down the road trying to figure it out and it can be a real challenge. Because, and I've got a perfect example right now with a family, uh, a mom who grew up in a, a real toxic environment. And she's got a child who has been, who has had seven different adoption, not foster placements, adoptive placements. She's oh. had seven failed adoptions. Now, this mom has this, who this child who's 13, who she's adopted but then she also has another 13-year-old who's a foster child. And the adopted 13-year-old, her survival is rooted in feeling like she's safe. Her survival is rooted in feeling like this mom loves her and cares for her and is always gonna take care of her and sees her as an an important person. Well then, when you tie that in with another 13-year-old, you've immediately got sibling rivalry dynamics you got sibling rivalry from these two kids who both come from a a place of lack. So the adopted 13-year-old is always looking for the mom's certainty and the mom's security to make her feel like she's going to have a home. Well, mom gets stressed and regresses to an adolescent. She regresses to an emotional age equivalent to these two girls. So then she's not able to create the safety and the security that this adopted 13-year-old is looking for. So all of a sudden, the adopted 13-year-old no longer feels safe, wants to fight and, and, and attack the, the 13-year-old foster child. The 13-year-old foster child's fighting back, Mom's regressed. She's mad at the 13-year-old adopted child because she's making her not feel good enough, like she's not a good parent, like she's not able to meet these children's needs, which emotionally she's not when she's operating like a 13-year-old. And you have this huge negative feedback loop that starts to become a condition pattern in this home. So that's probably a little more than you asked for, but these, <laughs> these are the dynamics that I work with every day
0: yeah well let me let me stop here for a second then some of the tips for creating trust with a child are you talked about co-regulating with a child tell us what you mean by that
1: okay so let me give you a, i'm going to give you a great simple yet really scary tip for parents when it comes to developing trust with teens with adopted teens and tweens and that is the ability of the adult to trust that the child is going to be okay and the situation is gonna be okay. That's the first thing. The ability of the parent to trust, so the parent has to have their own level of trust, faith if you will, that everything is going to be okay. So if that teen or tween says, I'm leaving, the parent has to have the trust inherent within themselves And within the relationship that they begin to create with this child, that doesn't make them try to force that child to stay in the home. It doesn't make them try to to threaten the child or shame the child or control the child's behavior. It actually, they have the trust to let the child walk out the front door if they need to. That's huge because what happens is that The first level of trust is trust within ourselves. Trust and security and certainty within ourselves that says we are enough to parent this child. When a child, because it is inevitable that the child's going to say, I'm leaving. As soon as that happens, the parent is going to freak out. That's human nature, that's the amygdala reaction.
0: Sure, you're afraid something will happen to the child.
1: Absolutely because the amygdala wants to control. The amygdala is immediately gonna to wanna to say and inform that parent that they can't let that child walk out that front door because that child may die, which means they're a bad parent. That's because the parent is lacking trust within themselves. Trust within themselves says, it's okay for this child to walk out the front door because this child probably walks out the front door every single day. They may even walk out the front door multiple times a day and nothing happens. So just because the child has escalated and they're threatening to walk out the door or leave the house doesn't mean anything bad's going to happen. They walk out the front door all the time. So I'm going to say, instead of saying to this child, no, you can't do that, or if you do do this, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to take a deep breath. I'm going to go sit down on the couch and I'm going to say to the child as they're walking out the front door, it makes me feel sad that you feel like you need to go, but that's okay. I'll be here waiting for you when you get back. And you're going to wait and you're going to have trust and you're going to have faith. And what that does, this is the important piece in this dawn. because when that child says I'm leaving, that child is now pursuing that old pathway in their brain that says the only person that can protect them, the only person that can make them feel safe is themselves. So when they say I'm leaving, they're already pursuing that pathway. That pathway is already engaging their brain. It's lit up. It's on fire. This is a repetition. It's an imprint. It's a blueprint. And that's what the child it's turned on. And the child can't see, think, or feel anything different than they have to be in control. When the parent is able to say to the contrary, I'm sorry you feel like you've got to leave. This is your home. I care about you. I hope you'll be safe. I'll be here when you come back. That pathway gets totally confused, totally confused, because because all of a sudden, the parent is giving the child control. That's the biggest challenge parents have with teens and tweens, is they don't give them the control that they deserve by the time they've reached that age, number one, and by the time they've gone through all the trauma they've gone through and all the negative experiences they've gone through, the the parent doesn't give them rightfully and respectfully the control over their own lives that they've already had to have for 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 years already.
0: Okay, well, wait, let me ask a question then, all right? Yeah, these children have had uh, a tremendous amount of control, oftentimes, not always, but often uh, a a lot of control over their lives and very little direction and very little rules. And and I'm... Uh, so what I hear you saying is that you're trying to exert control but, but isn't part of parenting to set up rules and expectations so that we can guide our kids so that they don't uh, get into trouble, that they do get their schoolwork done, that they uh, don't date a guy, you know, 30 years older than them and all the other things that, that you know, that, that they are their, following their own great, sense.
1: Great, great, do. great, great question. Great question. Let me say this rules and expectations without relationships will always fail. Rules and expectations without relationships will always fail. Rules and expectations without an understanding of a child's trauma and the blueprints from which they operate from will never succeed. The only way rules and expectations work is through secure relationship. The the power of relationship is the power to influence the amygdala wants parents because the amygdala is our fear receptor the amygdala wants parents to resort to control we have to be able to develop relationships strong enough to influence our children once you can do that and so that that means you've got to go through You've got, and you don't have to, but I'm just, this is the way I suggest parents do it because a lot of times the way they've done it has not been effective. You've got to go through the fear and the anxiety of letting that child walk out the door without trying to control them so that you can build a strong enough relationship. That's so important. Number two Parents who adopt teens and tweens have to understand that these children are coming from working blueprints for no relationship at all. They don't trust anyone because they've never had the repetition to be able to trust anyone. So unless a parent can create that repetition for that child and that repetition is gonna involve that child doing things that that parent disagrees with, scares the the living daylights out of them Mm -hmm. makes them feel helpless makes them feel overwhelmed doesn't know what to do that parent's got to be able to move into a place to hold relationship with that child to build on those seeds of relationship and number three finally and i wasn't clear on this because i heard what you said these children have not had any control over their lives so what happens in their brains and in their cellular system, because they've not had any control over their lives, they have become conditioned for survival and survival ultimately is rooted in the need to control. So then it becomes a control battle because they only know how to survive mm-hmm. and they have to give up control. They, they have to resist control because control for them is, is connected to life or death. If they don't have control, they're going to die because they've never had control. So they're always fighting for it. Parents have to learn to give these kids control.
0: So I hear you say from that the foundation of all, uh, and certainly the foundation has to be established before you start setting up rules. And that is a secure relationship. And one of the ways you do that is to give the children, the the, uh, tweens and teens control, because the reality is you can't, you really can't control them, I mean so that that's part of it anyway, you really can't
1: let me give so, you an example let me give you an example of, of, of my adopted son he's uh twenty twenty six he came to me when he was fifteen he actually came to me living in my to live in my group home I had at the time for adolescent boys when he came, he was on um several medications he was on prescriptions for um, ensure the uh, the medical grade liquid that you drink because you won't eat because he was under severely underweight because he wouldn't eat and he was prone to running away. Well, he came into a group home that did not lock doors, that did not restrain, did not do consequences, did not do behavior modification. When he came to us at 15, he wouldn't even talk. One of the first things we did for him is we said get in the suburban and we took him to the grocery store and we said pick out what you like to eat no one before, and this is a child who had been in care since he's 12 years old. So for three years, they had been trying to force him to eat what they thought he needed to eat to the point, And he was, he was defiant enough and in survival enough and willing to constrict into to survival enough. That was his pathway that he was just going to starve to the point that they had a prescription for insurer. No one had thought to take him to, and this is a, he was from Honduras, so he was not used to, number one, even eating American food. No one had thought to just take this young man to the grocery store and say, pick out what you like to eat. Give him total control over his food. He picked out corn tortillas, eggs, avocado, Mexican cheese, and bacon. And he ate corn tortillas, avocados, eggs, Mexican cheese, queso, and bacon, every meal, usually once, twice a day, for probably about four months. And after about four months, he started to expand his taste. And then he started eating McDonald's. And he'd keep going back to his staple, but then he'd start eating something else. And he'd want a Big Mac or he'd eat fish or he'd try pizza or he'd try American foods. And before long, He wasn't eating his eggs and his corn tortillas and his avocados and his cheese and his bacon anymore because he had a palate for other things. That's giving a kid, a a 15-year-old, that's a teen, Mm -hmm. giving him total control. And parents have to be able to do that. If you can't do that, you're going to end up being unsuccessful with these kids. And and to be honest, there's no guarantee you're going to be successful with them anyway. They've got too many imprints and blueprints for stress and trauma, too many negative things, too many repetitions, too many years of painful relationships with adults. So there's no guarantee you're gonna be successful with them. But if you can't give them control over their lives and make relationship the most important, it's gonna be an uphill battle.
0: So what can parents do? Um, Because they feel like, well, foster parents certainly are being, but, but adoptive parents as well. We have to do our best to make certain that they're um, not out all night. They're not engaging in, in dangerous uh, activities. That they're not drinking and doing drugs and driving when they're drinking and doing drugs or whatever. So how? So I hear what you're saying is that that we've got to us that the, the relationship has to be paramount. And this is complicated because generally, by the time our children that we've had from a young age, by the time they reach their tweens and teens, we've had years to establish relationship. But when they come into our home as a tween or a teen, we haven't, got, we haven't had years of, of trust to have built up. So I hear what you're saying about give them control, but is there anything else that we can do to protect them or do we have to simply accept that that's not something that we're capable of doing?
1: Well, here's the thing, Don, a lot of times families have had, you know, when, when, when they start out with their children small, they've actually had years to lose the relationship. That's why we have so many challenges. That's why there are so many challenges with teens, because we've spent years trying to control their behaviors. And what we end up doing is losing the relationship. Here's the thing. We, we are biologically engineered to be in relationships. When parents can, and it's, I'm not advocating for kids to go out and drink and smoke and have sex, but the reality is there, there are every bit as many biological natural children doing that as there are, you know, adopted, traumatized children. The reality is, is that it's a, it is a rite of passage to do, to engage in these delinquent behaviors that parents do not approve of. It's going to happen. Parents have to understand it is going to happen. But how can you create a secure relationship on the front end to influence that, the likelihood that this is going to happen? How can you create a secure enough relationship on the front end to influence a minimal amount of that or none at all? And after it does happen, how can you restore the relationship so it will have a deep enough impact so the relationship carries enough weight that the child can make a choice for something else because the reason children sexually act out, the reason children smoke, the reason children drink, the reason children run away is because they don't have a secure relationship anchoring them to their family. When they have a secure relationship anchoring them to their family, what happens is that relationship encourages the development of the oxytocin response. Children Children engage in delinquent behaviors because they're stressed out. Children don't engage in delinquent behaviors because they're delinquent kids, because they're bad kids. They engage in those behaviors because they're stressed out, and those are all attempts to self soothe. If children had strong enough relationships, accepting relationships, understanding relationships, responsive relationships with their children to begin with, you would have much, much less instances of those kinds of behaviors. Let
0: me pause here briefly and remind people that this show is underwritten by the Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Jockey Bean Family has been a leader since 2005 in providing post-adoption support to strengthen adoptive families for successful futures. Jockey Being Family connects adoptive parents and children with education and resources to help prevent failed adoptions. Uh, Creating a family is is a recipient of some of their uh, their support. So what we are able to do is uh, help you through the support of Jockey Bean Family. They believe one failed adoption is one too many. You can connect with them on their social media platforms, Facebook and Instagram, and they are Jockey Being Family over there. Okay, we are talking with Brian Post about adopting tweens and teens. All right, Uh, okay, you've you've helped us understand that the most important thing we can do is to establish secure relationships with all of our children, but right now we're specifically talking about uh, uh, children that we've adopted uh, past the age of, say, 10 or 11. So can you give me three things that parents can do uh, right after their children enter their home and, and, uh, and, and as long as they're there to help, secure, uh, to help establish a secure relationship?
1: The first thing they can do is to look the child in the eye and tell them, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to hurt you. I don't want to fight with you. And I am not going to try to control you. I want to create a relationship where you feel safe, secure, and understood. And I understand that that might be difficult because you don't know me, but if you'll just give me a chance, I believe we can make this a happy, safe, healthy home for you. I believe that's the first thing the parent has to do. Mm -hmm. In instances where children have been sexually abused, one of the first things I tell parents to do is to look at the child and say, parents do not have sex with their, with children in this home. We will never have sex with you. We will never touch you inappropriately. And we will never ask you to do something that makes you feel uncomfortable. That's the first thing parents have to say. And they have to use those specific words. The second thing parents can do, I'm going to say can, can do, should do, can do, will do. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. One of those. Is you have to understand that trauma creates stress and fear sensitivity And all of these children have experienced trauma so they have brains that are sensitive to stress and stress can be experienced through any sensory pathway what you see what you smell what you hear what you touch what you taste the temperature of your body digestion movement and intuition so any number of things can cause a child to have a stress reaction if that stress, if that stress reaction gets high enough it's going to cause the child to drop into their trauma and they're going to be they're going to be operating from their trauma not from anything the parents have done personally so parents have to see these children as stress-sensitive and fearful, they have to see these children as when they become stressed, they regress to an emotional age. The third thing parents can do is think about the emotional age of the child, not the cognitive, not the chronological, and do things that honor the emotional age. So if you've got a if you've got a 15-year-old who who had a lot of trauma. From zero to five, then they probably there's nine times out of ten they'll regress to to the age of five. See them at that age and see them as operating from their trauma, and try not to take it personally, even though that's the most difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, fourth thing they can do is time in instead of time out. I, mean, I can I can get into you know more specific things, but so much of everything that I do is just based off of an understanding. I feel like if parents have an understanding, if you operate from an understanding, understanding, understanding that negative behavior is driven from stress and from fear focus on the stress and the fear not the negative behavior focus on helping the child regulate the stress realizing that the control that we were talking about earlier isn't a matter of of giving the child the the permission to to tell you what to do or do whatever they want to do it's that you're going to focus on the relationship. You're going to focus on, on love more than you're going to allow stress and fear to dictate your home. And when you do that, it, it it makes so much more of a difference for how that child comes to be able to trust you and understand you and to be able to accept you as an adult and as a parent.
0: And, and one of the things that that we have to also acknowledge is that try to understand what it is that creates stress in your child. Yes. And it may not be what you think. You know, it's because they they have been they have different stressors, and almost always, stress inside the home is is one of those factors.
1: ninety nine percent of the time, it's not what you think. Yeah, and that's and that's where we get in that's where we get into, you know some of the biggest challenges is because the majority of the time stress is unconscious. That your, your child doesn't even know. They may wake up from a bad night's sleep and their window of tolerance where, you know, on a scale of one to 10, 10 being a, a wide window of tolerance for stress and, and zero being no window of tolerance for stress at all. Therefore, your behaviors are off the charts. They may wake up. From a bad night of sleep and nightmares and their window of tolerance instead of being at a 10 is at a 3. So how that shows up in their behaviors is that they're cranky and irritable and they say something nasty to the parent and immediately the parent personalizes it without realizing it has nothing to do with the parent at all. Parents have to learn how to breathe. You have to learn how to breathe and you have to learn how to calm yourself down without getting so overwhelmed by nuanced behaviors, nuanced behaviors like rolling eyes, talking back, Mm -hmm. huffing and puffing, not doing something when you're asked, being defiant. You have to be a, a defiant child is a scared child. And and traumatized children have high degrees of defiance because they're so fearful. So they ignore and they don't do what parents ask them to do do immediately because their brain goes into freeze mode. And when the parent approaches them and tries to get them to do it, they go into fight or flight. And so you've got to be able to remember to calm yourself down as the parent, as the adult, because your amygdala sends a vibration to that child's already sensitive amygdala, which causes escalation. You've got to be able to give that child some some leeway, some flexibility, and realize it is a dance. It is a very sensitive, it is a very intimate dance you are doing with this child in the moment to moment. And until you get a really good understanding of this child's personality their history the experiences some of the experiences that they have which can be really challenging with teens and tweens because they've had so many experiences we don't even know about them all they don't even know about them all some of these experiences are are preverbal they occurred as birth traumas they occurred as in utero assaults that still inform the child in in this day you know until you get a really good understanding of that a really good comprehension of that you got to give the child a lot of flexibility, which means we as parents have to be really flexible. And that's really hard when you're stressed.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and hence the understanding of the, the, what you had said earlier is don't take the behaviors personally. Uh, so often it's hard. I mean, it's hard as a parent not to.
1: Sometimes it's impossible. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you I'm why right it's I'm there impossible. with you.
0: Sometimes it's impossible.
1: It's impossible It's impossible because our amygdala, our primal brain, is always looking for a threat. So anytime a child misbehaves, misbehaves, it is immediately a cue for our amygdala to start releasing cortisol. That cortisol immediately, see, stress causes confusion, distorted thinking, and suppresses the short-term memory. So that cortisol immediately starts to impact our thinking and our short-term memory. So then... If we don't grab control of that right away by taking deep breaths, by taking a step back, by, by actually not saying anything at all in response to our child's behavior outburst or whatever it may be, we will quickly get overwhelmed. And when we get overwhelmed, that's when the situation just gets worse. So we take things personally because of our brain, because of the sensitivity of our brain.
0: And, 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 and that's something you said earlier, too, and that is we also take things personally, what we take personally and how strongly we react also says a lot about our own personal history and, and the baggage we're bringing in, uh, which we all do. That we all come with our own, uh, our own history and, and our own ways of responses, but trying to separate that and understand that, uh, that the way that the child is not intentionally trying to trigger our issues. And it's up to us to be able to to control to control our issues. Let me ask another question. When and I said we had we had um, uh, polled our audience and, and asked them what their concerns were about adopting an older child. Um, another concern that we heard from them was they were worried that the challenging behaviors uh, that we've talked about—the sneaking out or the whatever, the lying, the stealing, whatever—the the annoying behaviors might influence other children in the family. Is that a realistic concern?
1: It is a realistic concern, but people have to understand why it's a realistic concern. It's a realistic concern. It's a realistic concern because it creates stress in the family, not because it, it, it's an influence. Not because it's an influence to the other children, but because it creates stress in the other children. And then the, and just because it creates stress in the parents, and then everyone in the family gets stressed out. That's that's what families, that's what parents need to be concerned about more than anything is when this child with this predisposition for fear and stress comes in the home and we as the parents get overwhelmed, how can we maintain a perspective of security that doesn't allow the other children to get overwhelmed too? Because the other children, I try to help teachers see this just like I try to help parents see this. Siblings in the home always look to the parents to see how the parents are handling the situation to determine how they how they should feel so when there's a, a, a behavior episode the children look to the parents first they feel the parents feelings they feel the vibration of the parents to then determine how they should feel about the situation when parents can handle even though it may get out of hand and even though it may get out of control for a period of time when parents can come back with from a place of security and a place of certainty and help the other siblings understand hey this is a part of the journey we're going to get through it they start to develop a healthy perspective for their for their more stress sensitive and fearful siblings challenges Mm-hmm. And keeping
0: in mind that you've, uh, depending on how long these children have been in your home, you've had years to have worked on and perhaps something to be concerned about, I mean, to be cognizant of before you adopt is you've had years to establish secure relationships. And as you pointed out earlier, it is our, our children uh, behave or conform to our expectations or desires uh, based on their the security of their relationship with us. So
1: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: so... All right. So another concern we hear is that when we adopt children at, at these older ages, that it's going to be hard for them to ever become feel like they are really fully members of uh, of the family, uh, or, or even the fear that they will never really consider us parents or consider us family or that they will attach to us in a way that would be uh, that, that makes them feel like fully members of our family. So thoughts on
1: that? My thought on that is that when we are able to create an environment of open communication, open processing, when we can honor where the child has come from, the loss the child has experienced. See, this is, this is one of the reasons so many, there are so many adult adoptees that are resentful about being adopted because no one, has taken the opportunity to really acknowledge where they came from, what they went through, and how they must feel. Everyone wants to say, well, now you're in a safe home with parents who love you and you have all these nice things. Everything should be okay." But that's, that's taken us down the wrong path. That's a path of denying a child's feelings, which is ultimately denying the child. When you can open up to the communication about the adoption, you can open up the communication about the trauma and the the challenges that the child has gone through, and you can go through stressful situations with that child and come back to a place of relationship. That's what creates the certainty that we call family. The certainty that we call family is based on being able to be stressed out and overwhelmed and anxious and scared and angry, and being able to repair it and it being able to be okay. When you can do that through repetition and through time, children can feel like they have families where they where they may have lost their families. There's there's I mean I, I'm, I'm I was not adopted as a teen, I was adopted as an infant but i can tell you that just because you're adopted as an infant you can grow up feeling like you don't have a family i had a sister who grew up feeling like she didn't have a family but then i've got a my 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 adopted sister i grew up with but then i've got my adopted son who came to me at 15 and i he calls he i'm i'm dad and his mom is mom and we're his family and that's what he feels that's what he knows if he's stressed he looks to us because we've always honored who he is we've always Honored what he's gone through. We've always honored his loss and his abuse, and and his struggle. And at the same time, we've treated him just like we treat our biological children. I will I will get frustrated with him the same way I get frustrated with my adult my adult my adult biological child. And so. He's not spared any any experience for me, and at the same time, I apologize to him. I tell him I love him, I hug him, I love on him, I give him money, I do him I do the same way I would my biological children. And if there was ever an instance where he showed up feeling you know and communicated to me that he didn't feel like he really had a family, the only thing I would do is I would just honor that. I would honor that experience for him because the honoring of that experience for him actually helps him feel everything he's supposed to feel in a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Another concern that we hear from families is a worry that they will never be able to help their child catch up academically or that the child will not be able to graduate or will not be able to find a job. Or, or They usually don't say it in terms of not being able to find a job, but we do hear a concern of how they are going to help this child uh, succeed academically?
1: You know, (laughs) it's funny, Don, because I I just wrote an article this morning and like in the parentheses, one of the things I was going to put is I am not an advocate for school. I tell parents, forget about academics forget about trying to get this child on par with, with his other peers. This child is behind and but what they're in behind what they're behind in more than anything is the importance and the power of social and emotional connection. Build the relationship. make the relationship the single most important thing and here's what we know about a lot of traumatized children. A lot of traumatized children are actually cognitively gifted. It's their emotional deficits that doesn't allow them to find balance between the emotional and the cognitive so they can excel. Parents want to go into adopting these children putting pressure on themselves Mm -hmm. and then on their children around academics. Academics mean nothing to a child who's grown up in an environment of neglect and abuse and and abandonment, it means nothing. And it's not gonna get them anywhere in the world. They can make straight A's, but as soon as they go out into the world, they're emotionally regressed and they act like a two year old and then bad things happen. Build the relationship, build the certainty, build the security, build the connection. When you do that, you help the brain develop oxytocin, you help the brain develop prolonged experiences of regulation and then, the child is able to learn effectively and proficiently. When you put the emotional regulation first, when you put the experience of love and relationship first, the academics will come, but never let the academics be a stressor. Just don't, just don't let anyone put that on you as a parent. And then don't put that Mm -hmm. on your child because it is just not, it is so, there is so little There is so little value in what we do with children academically in schools as they grow up for when they become adults. Work work on finding your child's gifts. Like I've got a 13-year-old little boy right now in one of our homes, and we've got a mentor assigned to that home. And what that 13-year-old little boy does every day is he works with that mentor because that mentor is a carpenter. And he works with the mentor to fix projects around the house, to go over to other people's house and work on things. And we pay him a small hourly amount and he loves it. He loves doing stuff. He loves staying busy. He loves making money. No math, no English, no history is going to help that young man be successful as an adult. What's going to help him be successful as an adult is learning that he can be successful, learning that he can be, he can be regulated, he can be in relationship with adults, and that he is capable of doing something. That's what's going to help him be successful as an adult.
0: You know, I'm I'm really glad to hear you say this about the academics because I do think that parents put so much emphasis on it. But the reality is this: if your kids are coming to you terribly academically delayed, your stress, your worry, your your pressure on them, it's not going to change any of that. They are. It is. It is what it is. And as you say, focus on the relationship. They may not catch up academically. Actually, chances are pretty good they won't. And so be it. So they will do something else. There is a place in this world for people with different academic skill sets. They, they, you, they may find their one true gift, and that would be wonderful. And if they don't, they can still live happy and successful lives. It's this uh, – I do think we put so much – I guess it's because our society judges us as parents as to, you know, what college our kids go to, or, you know, if they, they, where they graduated in their high school class, things such as that. Um, And that's just unfair to you and the kid.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it has, it has, it has very little value when it really comes to to being an adult and and being successful
0: and being successful exactly it really and, and success can look different ways and if if you've come from a background that valued success academically and and degrees and things like that your va your your vision of success is been is being influenced by your background and yeah. it really helps before you adopt a child an older child um, To recognize the limitations of your own definition of success, and that helps perhaps take some of the pressure off of you to put pressure on your kid uh, to academically catch up or succeed or, or do something. Let me pause here and thank uh, two agencies who have our uh, supporters and of our mission at creating a family to provide uh, education and support to pre and post adoptive and foster families. Uh, they believe in our mission and support our mission through their contributions that allow us to bring you this show and all of the resources that, that we have on our site. One is Vista Del Mar. They are a licensed nonprofit adoption agency with over 65 years of experience helping to create families. They offer a home study only service as well as a full service infant uh, program and a post adoption program and a foster to adopt program. You can find more information about them online at Vistadelmar.org slash adoption. And we also uh, have hopscotch adoptions. They are a Hague accredited international adoption agency, placing children from, I love, I love reading off this list, it's it's melodic to me. They place children from Armenia, Bulgaria, Croatia, Georgia, Ghana, Guyana, Morocco, Pakistan, Serbia, Ukraine, and they specialize in the placement of children with Down syndrome and other special needs, as well as in kinship adoptions. All right. uh, speaking of adopting internationally i wanted to turn to some special issues that we see with older kiddos who are adopted internationally and and the first one that uh, parents need to be prepared for is the uh the struggle with communication uh as as my eldest says my pain is real my struggle is real uh and in, in in this case it really is uh it is a problem um how do you see uh, how have parents been able to work around that communication and and what are some of the ways that the inability to communicate uh, can trip up families and kids when they first come home?
1: Oh, you know so I think that's such an important thing because communication, as you know, you've probably traveled internationally, and it is a completely different experience when we go to another country and we don't know the language. And so, I think taking the time, realizing the importance of, of being able to communicate clearly with our children at that, at that initial level of, of relationship and connection is so important. Making sure that they feel heard and that you are hearing them correctly, slowing down and taking the time and making things very simple. Don't make things too complicated. Make it very simple. And that goes back to the whole academic thing. You know, children, we want to take these children that come from different countries and then we want to put them in our school systems. And we we just don't take enough, we're not mindful enough of that extra, that extra layer of fog they have to go through to be able to comprehend what's being asked of them or what's being expected. And that creates Greater sensitivity to rejection and potential fear of abandonment. And so we've got to realize that that, that com- those communication barriers are very real. Mm-hmm. And our ability to slow down and be very mindful and figuring out the the, the best, most simple way to communicate is so important.
0: Mm-hmm. And you know, and, and something is easy. This we don't think of it as communication, but it is. But uh, finding out their favorite comfort foods, their favorite foods, and making certain that the house is stocked with that—that's a simple thing that that you can do. Um, Using pictures, even for older kids. You think we talk a lot about little bitty kids, but giving them the ability to to, to with with pictures. Also, thank goodness, you know, Google Translate and things like that mm-hmm. really work. And I will tell you, I, I think it if there's absolute and there is a way there, it should just be a requirement that uh, if you are adopting a child, really any, but let's say tween and teen that from the, uh, where you don't speak the language to find someone who can, doesn't even have to be Look, You could do it via uh, a conference call. You could do it via zoom. You could do it through a telephone call, uh, Google meet, anything, FaceTime uh, with somebody who speaks both English and that child's language. Oh, and
1: that's so, that's so important. So Don. important. It, and
0: it, it. you know what, it's, it's particularly helpful if that person has lived in that country so that they understand some of the cultural nuances as well, uh, because then they could be a translator not only of language, but also of culture. And uh, having that lined up, and if your child's already home, it is not too late, uh, but, but if, if, this, uh, if you're listening to this before travel, having that lined up, it makes all the difference in the world. And ask that person, pay them if you need to, uh, but ask them to be around at least once a week. For as as long as needed, to to help your child be able to communicate with you and you to your child,
1: absolutely, and yeah. assimilate assimilate into the, the culture that that child comes from as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, go, go go to go to church services. Uh, That are connected to that child's culture, festivals. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: um, You know, go go to special events connected to their and food
0: and stores, food stores. You know, find a food store from Armenia uh, if you're fortunate enough to live in a large enough area, and let your child you know buy the place out uh, with uh, comfort foods. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so
1: important
0: it is absolutely. Uh, Another concern we hear is uh, safety concerns uh, if, especially if you're disrupting birth order. So you're adopting a tween or a teen and you've got younger children in the family. Uh, there, how do families protect both uh, both the younger child and the older child, uh, from physical abuse, sexual abuse, uh, things such as that.
1: Mm, I think the key there is, is mindfulness. And I, I, you know, I'm, I've, I've heard some just some really terrible stories. I, I just, it is really important for adoptive parents to get really clear on their own histories around abuse. Um, a lot of times we have histories of, of abuse, which then creates blindness, um, mind blindness, when it comes to our children and the the potential for for injury to siblings and it's it's not something it is not something you can be in denial about it is not something you can you can dance around you have got to be mindful and conscious and communicate talk see a lot of times we don't want to talk about it. We don't wanna talk about the child's abuse history. And that's the mistake. We need to talk with the child about their abuse history. We need to understand how they feel. We need to understand what their experience was. We need to understand the things that make them feel stressed now. We need to know when they feel, when they may feel um, that something is sexually stimulating or sexually inappropriate, or when they, you, we need to, we just need to be conscious and we need to open up the communication and it doesn't need to be pathologized. There's nothing about it that needs to be, you know, a part of, that this child is bad or this child is wrong. Cause this child was a victim. We have mm-hmm. to open up the, the communication and we have to be mindful. And if you can be mindful and if you can talk about it, then you can be, I don't like to use the word vigilant, I like to use the word mindful. You can pay attention. Pay attention, that's the key, pay attention. Because children who have had these early negative experiences, they're in their brainstem, stem and they get stressed and they revert back to what's happened to them. A lot of times, if you open up the communication, with that child about the experience and also with your other with the other kids in the home It goes a long ways and finding out as much as possible before you bring these children into your home, what they may or may not have experienced. And unfortunately not every orphanage is honest when it comes to these children's experiences.
0: Well, orphanage or foster care as well. And also in fairness, they they often don't know. Uh, And I want to just go back to reiterate something that that you said, Uh, and that is talking with all the children in the household Don't just don't make assumptions that your younger children are too young or won't understand, but talking to them about good touch, bad touch, how you make you feel, as well as setting up some common sense rules, even if they're not necessarily rules uh, you had to have before. Uh, Bathrooms, uh, bedroom doors, uh, you don't go in somebody's bedroom uh, without knocking and you don't go in at night and you bathroom doors are shut. uh, Things like that. People have the right to privacy in the bathroom, in the shower uh, and things such as that. And making certain that your younger children uh, or the other children in the household also know that those are the rules and what to do if they feel like somebody has touched them and they weren't in a place that they didn't want to be touched, uh, that they'll never be in trouble, that they can just come to you and tell you.
1: Don't make assumptions. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't make assumptions of what you think your children know or think your children know how to communicate. Um, yes, good point. It's just such an important thing.
0: Yeah, and and oftentimes the the the, the uh, greatest preventers of problems is just empowering all children to know that they can say no, that's against the rules. Stop. Absolutely. And, and then to, of course, tell mom or dad like that. Well, thank you so much, Brian Post, for talking with us today about adopting tweens and teens. There is such a need out there, and we so want families to go into it with their eyes wide open and to uh, embrace the possibility. So thank you so much for being with us.
1: You're very welcome, Donna.
0: And let me remind people that the views expressed in this show are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the position of creating a family, our partners, or our underwriters. Also, keep in mind that the information given in this interview is general advice. To understand how it applies to your specific situation, you need to work with your adoption or foster care professional. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week.